like you to turn to Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. That'll be our scripture reading. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. Might also make note here, uh, verse 68 brings this out, that God tro- uh, chose from the tribe of Judah the next king of Israel, where Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of the tribes. And it's real significant the fact that David was taken from the tribe of Judah. Verse 70, he chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Well, good morning. morning. Hope you've had a great holiday, and it is good to see you here this morning. I think I'm caught up in my cord. Let me fix that. All right. If you're visiting here today, we're glad that you're here at Savannah. And if you're going to be traveling, we pray for safe travels uh, for you as you go uh, the direction you need to go. There are family members from the, the family here at Savannah who are away traveling, and we need to be mindful of them. I want to invite you back tonight at 5 o'clock, and uh, tonight's service will be just a little bit different. Uh, Bradley uh, and I discussed, and, and part of the thought was, after all the eating and the visiting and being tired, and uh, a regular sermon from me tonight might be a little bit more difficult than usual to sit through, so our thought was a sermon in song, where the comments from me will be minimal, and we're going to focus on lifting up Jesus and singing about Him and some of the marvelous attributes of Him tonight. And so uh, you can sing and and work off a few of those extra calories tonight, but we hope you'll be back at 5 o'clock for our worship service tonight. We are in chapter 11 of the story. And Randy Frazee, who was one of the guys who helped put the story together, uh, in one of his study guides, he shared a story uh, from years ago, a legend from the Hawaiian Islands. And apparently it was customary years ago, when you got ready to marry, if you had a daughter, the guy who wanted to marry your daughter would come and he would bring you some cows when he wanted to marry your daughter. And the typical price was two or three cows for an average or up, you know, a good daughter would bring you two or three cows. And so a special daughter might bring you four cows. And there was a story that had been told that one guy had actually received five cows for one of his daughters. Well, there was a guy named Sam Carew and he had two daughters and he had a bit of a Leah-Rachel situation on his hands. The younger daughter, she was very attractive. We'd say she was kind of hot. But the older daughter, uh, she was shy and she was kind of plain and nobody seemed interested in his older daughter. And so he had resigned himself to the idea that for his older daughter, he was probably not going to see three cows. Four would be out of the question. He kind of held open the idea that he might get two, maybe one, but he'd also had the thought that if somebody really seemed interested in her and acted like they'd really want to take care of her, he might let her go for no cows. But then Johnny Lingo showed up. Johnny Lingo was a wealthy landowner, and 
Everybody knew that Johnny was getting ready to settle down. And so when Johnny started to approach Sam Carew, everybody thought that Johnny was going to be interested in the younger daughter. But no, everyone was shocked. He was interested in the older daughter. And then they were really shocked when he brought ten cows. He paid ten cows for the older daughter. Well, they went away on their honeymoon, and after a year-long honeymoon, they came back, and everybody was shocked when Johnny Lingo and his new wife get back because his daughter, or his wife, is now completely different in appearance. She's now strikingly beautiful without surgery. She's graceful, she's poised, she's confident, she's self-assured, and the lesson from the story was it was clear that when Johnny had viewed Sam's older daughter differently than everyone else, he was able to see beyond her outward appearance and to recognize the beauty of her heart and the beauty of her character. And so the value he placed on her true beauty helped her realize her true worth. The moment he paid ten cows for her, she became a ten-cow woman. And so another sermon for another day is maybe how to be a ten-cow woman. We're not going to talk about that this morning. We concluded last week with this reminder from God out of 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, his, his value statement of who we are. A reminder of how valuable we are in His eyes. And, and, and the idea that He always sees value beyond the outward and our mistakes and all the things that go on. He sees value because of who He's created us to be. And that kind of provides a lead-in to where we want to go this morning. God is going to have Samuel anoint David as the next king. But David isn't the obvious choice. And if you've got your Bible, you might have it open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as we think about this important choice of David to be the next king, I think it provides us an opportunity for us to think about the way we view people and the way we deal with people. God sends Samuel to Bethlehem. He says, there in the house of Jesse, you're going to find the next king. And you kind of get the idea from the text that Samuel believes that it's probably going to be kind of like it was with Saul, looking at externals. And so uh, the first son of Jesse to be paraded past Samuel is Eliab. And Samuel thinks, well, this surely's got the, going to be the guy. He's kind of got the look. And verse 7, it's familiar to you. You've heard it before. It's one of the key verses. It, it, it helps us understand God's view of how this process is going to work. Because verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so none of the first seven are going to be the guy. And, and Samuel begins asking Jesse, well, well, have you brought all your sons through here? Because God has... None of these are... God's not saying that any of these are the guy. And so, it's interesting that God works this process and, and, and makes them go through the process of bringing every one of the seven through. God could have just said to Samuel, go down and, and anoint David as king. David's going to be the guy, but that doesn't happen. And, and maybe it's a trust-building exercise. Perhaps it's God uh, trying to encourage them to rely on God's vision and not their own. 
Because Jesse's vision's not large. Jesse hasn't even brought David in from the field. David is the youngest. He's only 16 years old. But when Jesse brings David in, verse 12 of the text, God says to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So David is anointed king, and then Saul, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. A sour, evil spirit arrives upon Saul, also credited as being from the Lord, and so they seek out a musician. David ends up being that musician, and early on in the relationship of Saul and David, verse 21 of the text says that Saul loves David greatly. But then David kills Goliath. David becomes this valiant warrior. And David begins having this success. And Saul begins to feel threatened. And so later on, Saul doesn't love David anymore in the sense that he's threatened by him and he actually seeks to kill him. And so David has this 14-year wait from the time he's anointed to the time that he's finally inaugurated as the king. And during this time, it includes battles, it includes living on the run, it includes hiding out, it includes attempting to not let Saul kill him. Yet through it all, David shows respect to Saul because he's still God's king. This time also includes a close friendship with Jonathan that we've read about in this week's selection of the story. And in selecting David, as was just brought out at the beginning of our Bible reading, we see God's upper story plan at work. The idea that David from the tribe of Judah is found in Bethlehem. Jesus also will come through the tribe of Judah, also will be born in Bethlehem. And so I want us to think about a couple of questions, and I really want us to stop and land on verse 7 of this text this morning. I want us to think about the way that we deal with people because when you read verse 7, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How often in 2015 as we try to live our lives as Christians, how often does our lack of vision get us into trouble? How often does our lack of, of being able to deal with people as they see them for who they truly are, how often does that get us into trouble? And, and what if we could do a little better? And so that, that verse is where I really want us to spend our time this morning. Now, it's wishful thinking, I realize that, but what if, imagine with me, what if we could actually look at the heart? Because verse 7 is very clear in the way that God is dealing with this process and in the way that God operates. He's going to look at the heart. What if we could do that? What if we could always accurately understand somebody's intentions? What if we could always accurately understand someone's motives? Imagine what that would do. Dating would have just gotten easier. A lot less wasted time dating people, right? Parenting could be elevated to an entirely new level if we could always understand motive and intention. Marriages would improve. Think about all the misunderstandings and the miscommunications that could be avoided if we could actually look at someone's heart. How much easier would it be to make wise choices? How much easier would it be to be accurate when we pass judgment on a person or a situation? 
But it's wishful thinking. Because we can't look at the heart the way God does. And even if we could, we'd never pass judgment on a person or a situation, would we? And understand as I use that term, the, the, the term judgment, it's, it's one of those hot button words because it's so misunderstood and we've taken the words of Jesus, judge not, and we've assumed that that means you can never call anything out and it's, it's God will do final judgment and God will assign eternal destination and we understand that and we also understand in Scripture that if you see me doing sin as a brother or sister in Christ, you've got an obligation to say, Philip, you're doing wrong, you shouldn't do that. That's not judging. But Jesus was dealing with people who were nitpicky, who were self-righteous, who were constantly digging, looking, trying to, to, to make value judgments on others, trying to assume that they knew what was going on in people's hearts. And so that's what he talks about in Matthew 6. So we can't know the heart the way God does. And the question becomes, why are we sometimes tempted to treat others like we do understand what they're thinking? And we do understand what their motives are. Have you ever had somebody misunderstand your intentions? And how hurt and how frustrated it is in the moment. Maybe you're having a conversation and you're explaining why you did something or you're explaining your reason, you're explaining what was on your mind. And even while you're trying to explain yourself, the person you're talking to is telling you, no, that's not what you meant and that's not why you did that. As if they are in your mind more than you are. Have you had that happen? And in those moments, how do you feel? It's frustrating. And so understanding that it's, it's impossible for us to understand fully somebody else's heart, how can we do better at dealing with people? And, and I thought we would talk about several ideas that maybe would help us be better as we seek to see people more in the way God does. Number one, do not allow the external prevent us from getting to know a person's heart to the extent that we can. Sometimes all the externals cloud our vision. Sometimes the external and what we see in a person, it causes us to make an invalid assumption about who they are and what they stand for. Sometimes the external causes us to treat people who are created in the image of God in a non-Christ-like way. You remember James chapter 2 and the first four verses? James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? For us, the mistreatment, it may not be saying, sit at my feet. For us, sometimes the mistreatment might be ignoring the person with the bad externals, hoping somebody else will get involved. But if I could get past the externals, that would allow me to know a person's heart better. Number two, the idea of being quick to extend mercy and slow to pass judgment. And the idea that every person deserves to be treated that way, the idea that every person I interact with, they deserve for me to be quick to extend mercy and slow to pass judgment. The idea of being slow to anger would help me. 
You remember James chapter 1 again in James, uh, second part of verse 19, he says, but, whatever, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce or achieve the righteousness of God. It's the idea that the better I become at listening and the better I become at controlling my emotions, the better I'll be at extending mercy. The more hesitant I'll be to assume that I know what that person's motives were. The idea that I'm going to pass judgment on them. It also helps me to remember that even if my assessment of a person's wrong, if I've extended mercy and I've not assumed the worst about them, even if I've done all of that... If I'm wrong, God will always get it right. Number three, I would do better in dealing with people if I could believe the best about them until proven otherwise. You remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement, this positive guy that we like to look at at times? One of his great qualities was that he was willing to believe the best about other people. It happens in Acts chapter 9 with Saul. Saul is this new Christian. Saul wants to associate with Christians and Saul, the new Christians are scared of Saul. And it's Barnabas that stands up and said, listen, this guy's been converted. I believe in this guy. He's genuine. He's real. You need to welcome him in. It's going to be okay. It happens again in Acts 15. Second missionary journey about to happen. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, who had abandoned them on the first trip. And, and the take from Barnabas is, we can trust him now. He'll do the work now. We need, we need to take him out there again. He's believing the best about others. And if I want to get past looking at externals and start seeing people and trying to understand heart better, I would do well to believe the best about people until proven otherwise. And yes, it's risky. But isn't it more Christ-like than assuming the worst? And see, the other thing about it is, when I start putting these things into practice, the idea that I'm going to be... um, I'm going to not judge people and I'm, I'm going to think the best about them and I'm going to be slow to anger and I want to extend mercy. When I put these things into practice, that will help me be better at extending love. Agape, I want what's best for you, unconditional love. And these things will help me in every aspect of my life. They'll help me at home with my family. They'll help me at church with my Christian family. They'll help me shine a light into a world where there still are a lot of people who need to know about Jesus. But as we finish this morning, I want to turn the question around. And I want to think about it just a moment from the other side. Since I know others cannot know my heart the way God does... Are there some things, are there some principles that I can work on for my own life that will help people more accurately understand who I am when they look at me? I remember Leon Smith, who worked with us years ago, one of the things he would say from time to time, he'd say, the better you know me, the more you're going to love me. Not everybody can say that. And so, some things we could plug in. Step number one, we're thinking about David. And one of the amazing things about David is he's credited with having this heart that is after God's own heart. And if you've got your Bible, turn it to Acts chapter 13 and notice a a couple of verses there with me. 
But I need to seek to develop my heart such that it is similar to David's. I need to try to have a heart that is like God's own heart. Verse 22 of Acts 13 says, After he removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. One of the most mentally taxing things I can undertake is an attempt to look holy when it's really just a cover-up for who I'm not really am at all. When, when I'm really not trying to follow God and I'm trying to act it to the world like I am, that is a mentally taxing uh, thing to live by. It, it, we, we'd call it hypocrisy. It's condemned in Scripture. And how much better... If I just stay in Scripture and I continue to develop my heart and I continue to try to be what God wants me to be so that my heart is more after God's own heart so that when people see me, what they're seeing is genuine and what they're seeing is authentic. Number two, then as I'm attempting to be what God wants me to be, I need to remember that because I live among people, the external does matter. I want to do what I can do to make it difficult for people to misunderstand me. And this isn't our favorite, is it? Because we'd like to believe that either no one is watching us, or if they are, they shouldn't be. Yet I don't want people to make invalid assumptions about who I am because of what they see externally with me. You remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. It talks about the idea of avoiding the very appearance of evil. And then you remember Paul's message to the young minister Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where he encourages him as a young preacher to be an example to those who believe. And he starts talking about the entirety of your life should be an example. Some of you, especially those of you who love music, may be familiar with Carrie Gilbert um, and the KGB, the Carrie Gilbert Band. They've played music all around the shoals for a long time. What you may or may not know is Carrie, who is a brother in Christ, is dealing with a second round of cancer. He uh, was diagnosed in 2013. He went into remission in 2014. The, the cancer has come back. And so Thanksgiving Day, the Times Daily, it featured a picture of Carrie on the front. And it featured his story and, and the good attitude that he's maintained through this fight that he's undergoing. But in the article, there was an interview where they had a quote from Marty Rabin, who played with Shenandoah. He's also played a lot of music with Carrie through the years. And what Marty Rabin said really caught my attention. He said, His actions speak volumes to his faith in the Lord, and he's been such a great witness. There are people who don't read the Bible, but they read people who do. There's no telling who Carrie has inspired just by the way he lives. He then said we could all learn a lot from him. And I believe that illustrates the point. The external does matter. What people see in us does matter. And then finally, number three, if I don't want to be misunderstood and if I'm trying to have a heart that is more after God's own heart and I want people to see me for who I'm truly trying to be, I need to attempt to always combine honesty and respect and kindness. 
as my recipe for how I'm going to deal with other people. And obviously, it should go without saying, a lack of honesty, it's non-biblical. Beyond that, it breeds misunderstanding. And we all understand, not every conversation was intended to be comfortable or easy. There are rough conversations in life. Sometimes being honest isn't easy. But if I want a heart like David's, one that is after God's own heart, I need to be honest with people. And one of the things that sometimes happens with us, sometimes when we don't agree with a person or we don't agree with a decision, we forget that it's still wise to show respect. And one of the interesting things in our readings for this week in 1 Samuel chapter 24, there is this incident where Saul is chasing David. David's hiding in a cave because Saul's chasing him. Saul comes into the cave and while he's in there, David cuts off the corner of his, of his robe and even feels bad about that. Could have killed him. But David states, I still respect this man. Because he's God's chosen king. I don't stop respecting him because he wants to kill me. I don't stop respecting him because God has chosen him. And then what about kindness? What if we could just get that one down? Ephesians 4 verse 32, be kind to one another. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4, love is kind. What if we could just start and get that one right at home? If I could get it right at home, always being kind because sometimes the people I love the most in this world are the ones that I'm most challenged with being kind to. Why do we do that? It's hard being human. But again, all three of these, it applies to my family at home, it applies to my church family, it applies to the people that I work with, the scores of people who I don't really know but that I interact with on a daily basis. And please understand, I landed on this verse today and, and maybe took it in kind of a strange direction, but I don't stand in front of you as one who has this whole verse 7 thing under control. I'm liking just almost everything we talk about. I'm a work in progress trying to get better. We began with the story of Johnny Lingo and his ten-cow wife. God didn't pay for us with cows. He paid for us with His Son. And the older daughter in our story, she became a ten-cow woman when she understood Johnny's vision of how her husband saw her, the value that he saw within her. And when we think about God's payment, and when we think about the way He values us, and when we think about what He sees in us, are we allowing that to shape the way that we live? As we deal with other people, are we attempting to see past the ex externals and, and try to get to know people at the heart level? And are we attempting to be people who are after God's own heart? The kind of folks who, as they read us, they get a glimpse of Scripture. I love the quote, some people don't read the Bible, but they read people who do. What are people reading when they read us? Bradley's going to lead us in the song that's been selected this morning. And if in your heart of hearts you realize that people haven't been reading the right thing as they read you, and maybe you're here as a Christian and you want to make a new start today, you want to start over... We serve the God of, of starting over, and I love that. And So if you need the prayers of your church family, we can pray for you today.
Maybe you're here today not a Christian. Maybe you've not surrendered to Him in obedience. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ today and to begin your walk with Him. If you have a need, let that be known while we stand and while we sing.